Welcome to the Psychology for Theology series. Theology is reflection on God and God's relationship to all things, but especially to human beings. Psychology is the scientific study of the thoughts, beliefs, and behaviors of those human beings. But usually these domains are siloed. Blueprint 1543 takes an integrated approach. Because in order to live full lives, solve big problems, and serve the culture, we'll need to draw on many different domains of knowledge. But as intellectual as some of this work is, we don't want these how, when, and why questions to feel disembodied and out there. We think this work matters because it actually makes a difference in people's lives, including yours. This is an eight-part series with a free downloadable workbook available in the show notes. We hope you enjoy. This project was made possible through the support of a grant from the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation. Let's dive in, Cutter Calloway, because you are a theologian and you're also a psychologist. Are you comfortable identifying as such? I think so. <laughs> sometimes you're more theologian, sometimes you're more researcher. That's right. That's right. Yeah, psych researcher. You might have spent a lot of time thinking about this. And actually, I know you designed a course, but are you actually going to be teaching a course in the theology department about psychology or? Yeah, I did design it and I have taught it. And it continues on just the first round in January. So we were on a quarter system at Fuller where I teach. And that was the first quarter that we taught it in this past year. So now we've had two or three quarters and I've then trained a group of other folks to teach it as well. In part because it does take that having competencies in a couple different places to have that conversation and to teach students. Rewinding in your mind to a time when you were deciding to design such a course what felt urgent to you about teaching a psychology class in a theology school? Part of it's where I'm located. So Fuller still remains one of the only, I think, seminaries that has a, a doctoral or graduate program in psychology. And there's a few different emphases you can take, whether it's marriage and family therapy or get a PsyD or a PhD in, in psychology. And for some time, a psych science degree, which is the one that I've got, that's a little more research oriented. So part of it was where I was located going, we've got this whole graduate school of psychology embedded in a seminary, why don't we have classes for our theology students? Right. And wasn't it true that it was the other way around that the psychology students were required to take theology classes yes, and in yes. fact get like a theology master's or is that correct? Yeah. If you're in the doctoral programs in the school of psychology, you had to take a number of classes and you could get anywhere from an MA to an MDiv along the way. It was a requirement that you went over and, and took courses. It's basically that. Why wouldn't we require that of theology students? And maybe getting to the core question that we're exploring is there's this background assumption of what good is psychology? Why does it matter? Why would I want to bother with it? Much less pay tuition to take a class if I'm really here to really do theology. And that's what I'm here for. But the other reason is more autobiographical. If I am going to go, what are my strengths just personally? I've always been pretty decent at this theology thing. It's just what I enjoy doing. I grew up a church planters kid in the Baptist tradition. Baptists are, I think, sort of rebels historically. But I never had issues questioning common assumptions, theological assumptions, biblical assumptions, going to key leaders and asking them like, why do we say this? Why do we believe that? Or what about this script? You know, these sort of things. So 
as a Baptist, when I was like, oh, I want to do this as a vocation, the only real landing place was to be in church ministry. So that's what I did. I went into local church ministry, did it for a while, a decade or so. And I wasn't like horrible. I think maybe some people would say, yeah, we're glad Cutter was <laughs> involved. But what I was, I think, great at is interpreting scripture, thinking creatively about how to then communicate that to people theologically, and then asking the question of how does this relate to our broader life, to the society we're embedded in, et cetera. But most of the needs of the people, of the young adults, the teenagers I was working with, their parents, their families, were all basically, I'm like, you don't need a theologian, you need a therapist, and and you need counseling, and you need psychological help. I needed tools to go, well, wait a minute, if that's the case, how do I organize and manage not just my ministries, but even the way that I interact with them, the way I understand leadership. I'm not really equipped as a pastor, even though I'm a pretty good theologian, because most of the things that people are bringing to me are, I think, categorized either in that mental health model or just organizational dynamics and organizational psychology of how do systems and people operate. So those dual things that made me go, I think this could be helpful. And it's proven to be True. Early feedback for the course at Fuller has been, yeah, we're really thankful that you're forcing us, quote unquote, to do psychology as theologians. Did you get any feedback that was surprising or what have you learned from teaching the class in these early stages in terms of how people respond to the material? There's probably a few different responses. The way I structured it was some of it's just content, like how does embodied cognition shape the way we think theologically? How does positive psychology, how does evolutionary psychology, these different domains family systems, that sort of thing. So some of it was just introducing some kind of basic paradigms and resources to say, here are some ways to think about your work as a pastor or theologian. That could be helpful. So depending upon which of those, you know, you pick, it sounds like some are more or less helpful. The way that I operate in my paradigm, it really is uh, this notion of embodied cognition. So what comes from that? We are in intrinsically embodied in the way that we think and feel. And we are also then embedded in these systems or niches. And our cognitive processes, the way we think, is actually extended out beyond these sort of like fleshy containers that are our bodies. And it's extended into other devices, technologies, but then other people that we actually have a social element to the way we think. I also think cognition is what you would maybe say is emergent. So it's this higher order process that emerges from whether it's neurological processes that go on in the individual to the systems of a church or a business or an organization. And so if that's the case, what's been fascinating about this class is that starting with the body to say you are a body, I think that has been the most transformative part for theologians who are prone to think in very disembodied ways. I incorporate these practices that are really about connecting with your body. So mindfulness, guided meditation, breathing practices, grounding practices, which are all just ways that psychologists and therapists help people, for example, deal with trauma or deal with anxiety. And then it extends to things like practicing awe and gratitude and even sleep hygiene, right? Like these are some basic psychological practices that it turns out are actually rooted in a long tradition of spiritual practices. So there's a lot of overlap. But I think that Outside of all the content and the different paradigms that we're exposing students to, that part has been the most helpful and challenging of people going like, whoa, 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 what? I can talk about ideas all day long, but for you to tell me to 
write a letter to my body. For example, that's one of the assignments I have them do. And that's a little unsettling, right? Like I didn't sign up for this sort of deal. So that has been surprising to me how little that those learning activities or content has been introduced to students of theology who you would think going into different ministries, different NGOs, different organizations would really need this sort of stuff. Like, how do I just self-regulate when I'm exposed to all sorts of craziness? Gosh, yeah, I wish that class was happening when I was getting my theology degree. That writing a letter to your body thing sounds very edgy. I actually, I got the, the idea from a book by a woman named Hillary McBride. She's a clinical psychologist, does a lot of really good stuff, especially... Earlier work was on young women and mothers and their body issues. And then most recently wrote a book called The Wisdom of Your Body, which is fantastic. Each chapter has a few questions to think of. And one of those was this idea of writing a letter to your body. Man, I like it, though. I mean, I think as soon as you start doing it, you realize how the body is such a source of shame for most people. And how when you really start to think about it, that gets scandalizing when you think of that Jesus who's supposed to be the, the God man, right, is walking around in the human body. How did Jesus feel about his body, you know? That, is, that assumption that, like, the psychology department students for a long time had to take theology classes, but the theologians didn't have to take psychology classes. It reminds me of, like, the sloppy boundaries around the idea of the sufficiency of Scripture and what that has meant in biblical theology for Christians has been maybe poorly defined over time and in various cultural contexts. So yes, obviously, theology is essential and psychology is like a maybe you need it, maybe you don't think. Maybe that would take us on a whole rabbit trail. But it's a kind of a good segue to the question of the difference between how a Christian psychologist and a non-Christian scientist approach science and if that messes with their assumptions, their research questions, their actual work, how they apply it, how they how they interpret the data points that they gather. So what how would you address that to someone who was really new to this and really had all those questions and suspicions? Ooh, well, it depends. It depends on who you are, you know, of course. But in sort of broad strokes, one, I think it probably is helpful just to say, if let's say you're a Christian coming at this question of like, should I trust or be skeptical of psychology or psychological sciences of a therapist, let's say, who is or may or may not be a Christian, that it's perfectly normal to have anxiety about it, to be suspicious, to be concerned, in part because the history of psychology in many places was explicitly like anti-religious. Some of it birthed from a desire to say, we want to articulate this notion of human health flourishing without any of the sort of problems that come with theism, right? And then specifically Christianity. Famously, Freud essentially pathologized religion. And so there is a then a stream that comes from certain, not just Freud, we can pick on him all the time. I think he's actually super helpful for a lot of things. But makes sense for people to go, why is there this sense that psychologists don't like religion, don't trust it? Are they going to try to, you know, convert me out of my faith or whatever? All of that is normal because there's a real history to it. And even more recently, even if different psychologists or psych scientists weren't antagonistic or anti-theism or Christianity, they didn't care, right? They were, they were uninterested in the question, which is fascinating for a number of reasons. One of the fathers of modern experimental psychology is William James, who... I believe was a Christian, you know, open debate, but was fascinated with religious conversions, these varieties of religious experience. 
and specifically with conversion. And so psychology in the U.S. was birthed in some ways around this idea of studying what happens mentally, what happens emotionally, et cetera, when people have religious conversion experiences. It's only been the last 20 or 30 years that there's a small <laughs> but increasingly significant group of people, both Christian and non-Christian psychologists saying, wait a minute, religion and spirituality is pervasive in human society. For us as psychologists to say, we care about what humans do and think and how they behave, but we don't care about religion and spirituality is absurd. Like it's patently absurd on its face. There's a whole division of APA, Division 36, that is specifically about religion and spirituality. The American Psychological Association. Thank you, thank you. And yet, there still is, I would say, a bias against it. Not even just if you're a religious person, but the study of religion. It's really fascinating. And I'll see this in a variety of ways that are still surprising to me because I go, well, surely no, you know, that, that there's not really a bias. That's what I want to think. But there are times where I'm like, whether it's a journal article not getting accepted or something else where I go, is it? And I've actually tried to think strategically if I reach out to the general editor of a journal to go, how am I presenting myself? Do, which title do I use? Which even organization, right? Do I call what I, my organization Fuller Graduate School of Psychology? It's always in the back of my mind. So all that's real. However, when it comes down to the question of should I be all that concerned, there's also the case that the American Psychological Association requires therapists to actually be sensitive to and account for their clients' spiritual beliefs, their spiritual practices, et cetera. This is actually written into the code of conduct. I just want to ask you if you have any instincts about when you feel a bias against a religious faith, is there a specific aspect of religious faith that the a quote-unquote secular psychology establishment is opposed to? Is it just an idea that like believing in God or believing in the resurrection is like a fantastical, not intellectually rigorous thing? Or is it something else? I think, now again, this is my take, so maybe others would say there's it's slightly different, but I think the underlying issue is what I would call a methodological naturalism. Meaning the base assumption, the operating assumption is the only thing that is real is what is empirically observable, right? And even that's in the history of psychology a bit. There's a whole group of folks for a while called behaviorists who actually said there was no such thing as even the mind. It's only behavior. All we can study is behavior. Forget about this idea that there's some mental life. It's just what you do. And then there's this thing called the cognitive revolution. They've changed that. But even then, the way that we think, the way we feel, the domain of psychology, the sort of natural order is the assumption that there is nothing outside or beyond. To imagine, to believe, to think, to feel that there is, is not non-human, but it's certainly not true. And this is where your earlier question about uh, interpretation of data, all this sort of stuff, I think it all comes back to that. Of If you start with this methodological naturalism, when you get to the point of whether it's a client or some data that you're reading or even the study that you're designing, if the assumption is this is all just rubbish, why do people think in these ways that you're going to come to very different conclusions? Again, there's other reasons, but at its core, I think it's the starting assumption is this, the domain of psychology is the sort of natural order and it doesn't speak to anything beyond that because da, 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 there isn't anything beyond that. But isn't there a naturalism and then there's a methodological naturalism? So I could be a psychologist who is a Christian and believes in 
supernatural causes. I believe that God can interact with the world. I believe that maybe spirits do or maybe demons or whatever I believe in terms of my theology. But I have that sort of compartmentalized from the work that I do, which is about science in that science can only speak to what is observable. So in my personal belief system, I will allow for supernatural causes. But when I'm doing my science, I will talk about the observations of the physical world. No, no. Yeah, that's that's right. For the most part. Yes, I think that's correct. I personally wouldn't want the Christian scientists to be so separate in how they think about that. But you are right. Many do. And I'm like, oh, that's good. That's your choice. I'm a weirdo in the sense that it depends on the domain I'm in. When I'm talking to people who are pure materialists and to your point, they're like, we're scientists and we're investigating only what is observable. I go, that is fine. But the tools that you use to observe are based upon theories that you've designed. And those theories are based upon an actual what I would call a metaphysic, this notion of how reality is. And that is actually pre-critical, at least acknowledge that. If you can acknowledge that some of the ways you're framing this, they don't just rise up from the data, um, but instead are ways that we framed it. Now, it doesn't mean that's wrong or bad. That's good. But I want some sense in which you're acknowledging this is an interpretation of the data. And that interpretation follows from the way that I'm framing it. And it's really hard to talk about that without getting philosophical, without getting theological even. But a lot of scientists are trained and this makes total sense. And thank goodness they are because they deliver all sorts of great things for us, are not actually trained to think in those terms. They're interested in observable data and the outcomes from that and can sometimes err on the side of thinking, I really am just, I'm just observing and reporting. On the other hand, I go, I would say a Christian shouldn't so cleanly separate these two fields. And here's where I'm not a good evangelical. I've been reading David Bentley Hart's We Are All Gods, I think is what it is. And he is Orthodox. He's not Roman Catholic or Protestant. And is essentially saying, well, this separation of natural and supernatural is just false, especially when it comes to the human or the material reality. His claim is the material is in fact supernatural. The kind of way I would have framed it is something similar where the human just is, again, a body, right? We are a body and we are animated by what I would say is the spirit of God, the wind, the breath, the ruach of God. So when we are observing material things, we are observing the created order as God made it. And fantastic. What we find from there is in fact imbued with with God's presence. And so we, one, don't need to fear it but two, can allow that to inform the way we think about who God is, who we are, et cetera, et cetera. And in ways that we don't have to be so suspicious simply because of methodological naturalism, simply because there are some scientists who think religious people are crazy. That's where it's a little both and, and maybe unsatisfying for some folks, but at least my kind of approach to all this is to go, I'm going to walk in a domain where I recognize most of these people or a number of these people aren't people of any theistic faith, how can I partner with them? How can I collaborate so that I can learn and find a way to say, I can value many of the things you offer to me and the world without needing you to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord or something like that. That's helpful or getting at your question. That was enriching, I feel. I guess the one thing I might ask is if you can think of a particular research study or area of research that sort of draws out some of what we're talking about. One pretty like 
clear way that sometimes faith informs a psych scientist is usually someone's area of research is fueled by their personal questions, the things that they're interested in and curious about. And sometimes those things are colored by faith. The things that you're interested in might be about pastoral leadership or how people change and you want to, or what sort of spiritual practices do to people or how they are effective. I'm sort of just riffing so you can think a little bit. Also, the art-seeking understanding area that you're involved in is one that could be approached by someone of faith or not of faith. You could simply say you're studying the effects of art on people's spirituality, spiritual growth. And of course, you think that's a real thing. That's really the work of the Holy Spirit. But someone could study it in a phenomenological way where they're just talking about human experiences. I think art's probably a good example because it hits a number of things and it's squishy, right? So how people interact and experience art, it's hard to get at it psychologically, scientifically, because it is this kind of thing where it lends itself to what many would say is ineffable. My So like my project title there is measuring the immeasurable to say that there's a lot of folks in, let's say, the humanities or theology that I think they get on the cusp of something where art gives rise to what rightly we describe as something religious or spiritual or transcendent. If you think about a movie or a song, it does transport you in a way. It puts you in a realm that is not everyday, even though it can be very mundane. And that's really fascinating that art does this and that humans have made and created art for so long. What's interesting and some of the stuff I've done is in part because my mentor was Justin Barrett as well. So I looked into the kind of evolutionary psychology side of art. What What is it, separate out the religious side of it, but what is it that humans did or how they developed that would make them produce this stuff? Like, what is it that's going on? What I found fascinating is a lot of the same kind of cognitive mechanisms or processes that were invoked to describe how we developed evolutionarily to create art map onto the same ones in this realm called cognitive science of religion. I mean, this gets to your question of like, well, how does it affect the way you interpret it as a scientist? So whether in the cognitive science of art or religion, and these overlap a lot in terms of how people think, you get people who are Christian scientists looking at this and people who are not Christians. And in fact, some of them are atheists, right? They're explicit atheists. And all along the way, they're describing the same kind of phenomenon. They're saying, oh, this makes sense. We're trying to figure out, for example, this thing called agency. So when you're looking at a piece of art versus just an object, there's a lot of mental activity that goes into inferring agency behind that thing. Now, young kids will see agency in everything. They'll see a rock and it's pointy and you ask them, why is that rock pointy? And they're like, well, because that allows the monkey to smash the coconut and get it open, right? Like there's some purpose, something, and then something made it. It wasn't accidental. This idea that that just was accidentally pointy is, is absurd to them. There's an agent by it. Now, when you get to art, that's often what the assumption is, is that there was somebody behind this thing that made the piece. Look at it. It's obviously organized. It's intentional. It's trying to do something. And yet, it's not like a tool. It's not like a hammer, which clearly a hammer exists because someone made it because they want to hammer nails. This art object is just for what? Like what to look at? Like what? And especially when you get a long time ago, you go, well, yeah, people didn't have a whole lot of time and resources just be making quote unquote useless stuff. So what would provoke humans to make this, to consume it, to, to elevate it, to hold it up as sacred? So you can get to this thing called agency, right? 
And this is the same sort of mental process that most evolutionary psychologists would say is also the same thing that gets us to God and God concepts. We see agency everywhere. We have a hypersensitive agency detection device. And then we start imagining if we're worried about how Susie, what our agreement is, and if Susie walks off and is talking with Johnny, and I want to know what Susie and Johnny are talking about, well, if I have this agent that's an all-knowing, all-seeing agent that can see them, then we all agree, okay, nobody is going to lie to each other or backstab. So anyway, you can get a lot of agreement with a number of scientists, psychologists, whatever, around how those ideas emerged. And yet at the end of the day, the interpretation can then be very diverse. You'll get a person who's not a Christian to go, and clearly we are misguided and then lying to ourselves and this is absurd, but isn't it interesting, right? So it's not to be trusted. Whereas others, Justin Barrett being one of them, would say, well, wait a minute, before you just write it off, maybe part of the reason it emerged is because that's the very kind of creature that a God would make, right? Like God would make a creature that would see agency and things because there is agent, you know, and that's an example where you can partner. And for example, Justin partners with all sorts of folks and get a long ways down the road in a sort of shared project. And then at the very end say, okay, and yet we're offering some different interpretations of it. All, not all because, but in many cases, because of that starting assumption of even what's possible, right? Of what we're exploring, how we're going to explain these phenomena. And I find that really interesting because even my own self-understanding, I always stop and I go, okay, am I just seeing what I want to see? Am I just importing a starting assumption of theism onto this data that isn't really there? Or am I actually, like, is it reasonable <laughs> that I'm seeing stuff, right? That's a big question. Something that occurred to me while you were talking too is that, and it links up to something you were saying earlier about the physical world and bodies and matter. Having a low opinion of the natural world and the physical world, like it doesn't matter, it's disposable, it just gets us into trouble. If you have that in place, it's going to make it harder for you when you learn about these scientific observations and findings and studies than someone who's got a high view of the physical world, because then you could say, it's just, oh, that's how God did it. That's how God does it. When we keep learning more about how God did it and does it, <laughs> and instead of like de-enchanting it for you, it's easier to hold it all together if your idea of the physical universe and the human body, and you think it's something good and glorious. Yeah, I think you're right. So this is where different Christian and then religious traditions have very different anthropologies, right? They have different understandings of the human. They also have different understandings of the end, the telos to which humans are going. And some of those visions are radically anti-material and anti-body such that, yes, as you're describing, like the body is the problem, the source of all of our problems. Materiality is the source of our problems. And what the project of God in the world is to basically get us out of this materiality. We're going to escape it. I just think that's false. I also don't think it's Christian. Actually, I think as maybe you were saying earlier that there's a reason God's project in the world, this is not just, this is my theological hat, even prior to the incarnation, was always one of embodiment, that God is increasingly becoming embodied in the created order. The incarnation has now been the high point of that. But then we see in Revelation, this vision, not of removal from materiality, but then God 
makes God's home, dwelling place with humans. This is Revelation 21. There's no more weeping or gnashing of teeth because God tabernacles with humans, takes on flesh, takes on the material nature. So it's God becoming increasingly embodied. Yeah. We're not trying to get from over here to over here. We're trying to tesseract, (laughs) trying to put the things together, right? I want to make sure we get to this other area, talking about applying psychological principles to everyday life and reality. And this is a question that was sent to me before it was really made public, all the scandal with the Southern Baptist denomination. Someone literally said, how might social psychology influence how ecclesial meetings are conducted? specifically Baptist ecclesiology. And that's why I thought of you because you're maybe not so much anymore because I don't really know that much about Baptist ecclesiology. What sort of psychological principles are at play in what happened there and what typically happens in just normal meetings? There's the good and the bad of being Baptist psychologically. Yes, I've very much struggled with what do I even continue to be a Baptist and Southern Baptist in particular because it has got a history and some problems. Theologically speaking, I'm still Baptist and specifically in terms of ecclesiology. The last 15 to 20 years have been these innovations that specifically the Southern Baptists have introduced that I think are silly. They work against the tradition and the theology. And so it's been the last 15 to 20 years that I've actually been on a path of like, do I stay in or not? And then even, what does that even mean? Can you name a couple of those factors that appeal to you? What are the strengths, first of all, that initially connected you to being a Baptist? And then what were some of those factors that started to call that into question? I still appreciate the notion of the priesthood of all believers. So basically, everyone is fully equipped to be a theologian, if you will, right? And not everyone's going to be a professional theologian, and there are different callings where you train in different ways. But by and large, you as an individual sitting in the pews, whoever you are, God has called and equipped you and empowered you through the Spirit to be a part of this priesthood. I also really appreciate the congregational focus. So it's called the local autonomy of the church. So any instance of the church is an instance of the whole church. And so wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I will be there. And that also includes discernment. So Baptists have no creed. We're actually anti-creedal, meaning you could come up with a creed if you as a local congregation decide That's the kind of thing that would orient your life together. Otherwise, it's saying you as individual groups of Christians on the ground locally have the wisdom and discernment to decide what does God need in this time and this place for you and your community. Really like that. And so some of these are the same things that are the problems, right? Okay, and I'll get to that in a second. Another is this idea, it's called soul competency. What that means is... Um, This is why Baptists are uh, about adult baptism instead of child baptism, because they would say you are solely responsible for making an assertion of faith or a commitment of faith. No one can do that for you, right? On the one hand, that's a very interesting idea because I think it leads us in some ways to, at least in the US, which is good, of a sort of democratic pluralism. What that means is, I'm not going to use the state. I'm not going to use politics to enforce a Christianity onto anybody else. I need to inhabit a plural world where people are free to come to whatever religious decision they want on their own. And in fact, God has equipped them to do that. For me to try to adjudicate it or to top down enforce it would be to reject that principle. 
I actually find that to be a really compelling thing in the current climate is to say, hey, (laughs) all you Christians that would really like to force everyone else in your society to do and think and feel like you do, it's a very unchristian thing, right? Like we want you to come to this decision on your own. Yeah, spiritual autonomy, high value on that. The downside of all of those things, though, is it's like the inverse, right? And this is where being a Presbyterian would kind of help, where you can claim you have autonomy. You can claim you don't have a creed. You can claim you're all sort of voluntarily associating with each other. But in fact, and this is where psychology is helpful, you are actually bound up in these sort of systems, right? These systems and networks that influence and inform each other. And sometimes the challenge is in a sort of low church or free church model, because we haven't explicitly named them, <laughs> we don't have an org chart, if you will. We don't have a the book of common prayer. Because we don't have it named, it's hard to point at something and go, look, there's the problem. So what emerges is some of the same failings and flaws of any other organization, but it's harder to uh, actually point it out. And this comes to the SBC thing. One of the tragedies of it is some of the people that I still very much respect were saying, hey, can we keep a list of folks so that we don't unintentionally send someone who has been a sexual predator or is guilty of sexual assault and just send them to another church because we are a loose association? And people throw up their hands, well, we don't have a way to do that. We don't have a network. And yet they were doing it like they were actually tracking it. Well, It's easier in a system that has no, I don't want to say accountability, but doesn't have an explicit protocol similar with women in ministry. In fact, Baptists can ordain and let women preach. If the local congregation wants to, they're free to do so. But if you went and polled all the Southern Baptist churches in the United States right now, I'm pretty sure there would be very few (laughs) women preachers. And the reason is because these implicit norms start bubbling up and they actually have an effect that is sometimes even more powerful. But you could go to a person and go, you don't believe in women? Oh, no, why? we never said that, right? We, we didn't, you know, how dare you say that about me? No. And it's like, well, how come you don't have a single woman on leadership anywhere? Well, I, you know, a lot of this has to do with group dynamics and and what I would call sort of systems theory. Quick question before you dive into that. What happens actually at a meeting of the SBC? Like, like, what's the purpose and function of those gatherings if there's no formal unifying document or congregational decision making and all that kind of stuff? I guess it depends on thinking about like meetings of local churches or are they thinking about meetings of the Southern Baptist Convention. If it's the latter, the Southern Baptist Convention, most of it is hobnobbing and uh, passing different changes to what came to be known as the Baptist faith and message. Now, this is again, We don't have any creed. It's a theological statement, but it's not a requirement, right? I mean, these are some of the contradictions that are at the heart of this. And a lot of it is going through that. Also talking about the seminaries, there's a bunch of uh, Southern Baptist seminaries and who's in charge there, reports from those seminaries. And even maybe 20, I'm getting my dates wrong, but 20-ish, 25 years ago, there was a concerted effort to basically push out all of the quote unquote liberals uh, from SBC seminaries. This happens as in concert with meetings of the SBC in terms of how they pass different statements, right? Of what we do or don't believe. But it is very fraught because again, that doesn't rise to the level of a creed, but it is a the Baptist faith and message. This is the kind of thing that we all gather around. Gotcha. And at a, and at a local level, would a local congregation typically make 
decisions for the local church? Would it be a all member vote? Would it be just the leadership voting or would it vary by congregation also? I think it varies, but by and large, most decisions are congregational. Hiring, firing, changes, you know, you'll have a board, maybe some elders that the congregation votes to say, yeah, you guys can make some of these decisions, but especially major decisions, it's all congregationally driven. I'm imagining maybe there's some exceptions to that, but at least in my experience, that's always the case. So going into some of the psychological principles. Especially when that's the case, right? That, that, you have congregations, like supposedly priests of all believers, everyone's got to say there is some hierarchy, but by and large, it's this group. What's fascinating to me is that at least systems theory would say, one, we all individually come to any group with practices that we have developed based on our family, right? Like our family unit. That's the first sort of organization or system we're a part of. And we develop ways of dealing with conflict, of dealing with any just humans are very different. If you're passive aggressive or you're always shouting at each other and then hugging afterwards, if you're doing triangulating, right? So that is its own dynamic. And then you bring that into a a non-family setting, something that's extra familial. You now have both the organization develops its own kind of dynamic. And that is mixed up with all of the different assumptions that people bring into it about how you interact as a family, right? And it, and this is why for religious communities, I think family systems theory is so helpful because we often imagine ourselves as even explicitly a family, like the family of God. And one thing that I think is really helpful is usually what happens is whether it's the higher order of the SBC, like the leadership down to local congregations is often what you imagine is, okay, we, we've identified a problem, right? Something's happening. And if you're not thinking in systems theory, you go, well, we need to go find the person that's the problem and fix them. Like maybe they get kicked out and maybe it's, they get restored, maybe whatever it is, but they're the problem clearly. And what systems theory would say is that actually isn't good enough. Yes. Maybe there are problematic people, but the first question is, what is the problem in the system? Like, what is it that's going on that has given rise to this problematic person? So instead of trying to say, let's identify the person or the individual, it's what's going on in the way that we inhabit our lives together. Now, the challenge again, is that so much of that is often unstated and unsaid (laughs) that exposing it is really difficult. And that includes power dynamics and the higher order thing. And this is the accountability part of you, you don't just snap your fingers and then someone's covering up sexual abuse. This happens over a long time. It's a network of people. You go, wow, how did all these otherwise sincere people who love God start covering up for some of the most horrific things you could imagine? Surely someone in there. Well, if you're looking for an individual that's to blame, I think we all have responsibility, especially if you're in a formal position, you are responsible ultimately. But the problem is that it generates this entire system that allows for that lack of accountability and an entire system that allows for certain people in certain positions to be protected from any critique, essentially. And so that's where I think it is also the problem that downside of Baptist ecclesiology is also the strengths I was identifying. This autonomy of both the church and the sole competency, meaning the individual is solely competent, works against some of the psychological research on systems. There really is no autonomous congregation. There is no autonomous individual. That's essentially how how both they said 
we have no responsibility here because everybody's just doing their thing, right? We we don't have to account for the system that we're in, but it's also was to deny the fact that there's a lot of enablers here, even in addition to the actual people who were doing the harm directly. And I think that's the problem with a Baptist ecclesiology. And one of the ways that psych science can help inform it is to go, yes, we need to hold those accountable who were doing violence to especially kids, but women or anything that has to do with any sort of sexual assault. But if we only addressed that, the real rot is the system. And unless we address that, we're just going to basically repeat the process, right? We may scrub out all these offenders, the problems, without addressing the real root problem. Going along with that, a lot of contemporary or modern evangelical theology has put a lot of emphasis on the single unit salvation of the individual person. There's a theology there that supports the idea that we don't even need to worry about things on that level. So you can invoke essentially when that's brought up, like, well, maybe your assistants, you invoke these theological things to basically shut that down. That's the challenge. At the same time, I think that one of the benefits, back to what I do appreciate about Baptist thought, is that focus on local congregations also helps psychologically because, I mean, even just this this scandal, this seems so big, right? Like it's there's so many people and it's like, well, what do I as an individual Baptist in my little church here do about that? And there's a, a kind of a, a modern thing, a contemporary thing where we know all sorts of stuff about the whole world. <laughs> like, like we get this information and it's not about, oh, you know, John, man, Johnny and Susie, they've come off poorly today in my anecdotes. It's not about Johnny and Susie who live down the street. It's about these anonymous people that are out there that are, have been wounded or these anonymous people that are the offenders and violate. Like, I don't know these people directly, but they're now informing my sense of self, my sense of religious identity, and I'm anxious about it. Well, one psychological thing is, well, that makes sense because we actually can't keep in mind that many people, probably about 150 people. Can we like on a day-to-day basis go, yeah, I have 150 individuals that I know that are the sort of closest network of people. There's concentric circles of how many are really your intimate friends and colleagues to about 150 known associates. Once you get beyond that, People just become humans. They're just the other humans in the world because we literally can't keep in mind that many. So a lot of this has to do with how we emerged in certain local tribes and then went into this sort of agricultural revolution and, how, you know, all these sort of things. And now we have technologies that are changing faster than we know what to do with how much we know. It's mind-blowing. Ha, ha, ha. There we go. And it literally is. Like, it's blowing up our mental capacity in certain ways. It doesn't mean we should ignore it or not care about it. But what I like about the local church emphasis is to say, I really am called to be concerned about, to, like, exert my mental energy, my love for my neighbor. It's a very concrete, material, immediate thing. I say this hesitantly because it may be too strong, but you know, God loved the world. God so loved the world. I don't believe we're ever called to love the world. We're called to love our neighbors. And that's, you know, should I love everyone? Yes. Anyone that comes into my, you know, yes. But that can be paralyzing to go, I as a Christian have to love the world. (laughs) I'm like, what does that even mean? I can't even imagine what that means. But I 
do know in the heart and and it can even be a cop out, right? Like, oh, I'm loving the world by watching the news. And actually, that's another psychological dynamic. It's called it's like the empathy tax. I'm getting it wrong, but or empathy dues. Like I've paid my empathy dues by watching some world news. I feel really bad. I come out of it and I'm actually less empathetic to the people directly immediately around me because I've paid my dues. But this local church emphasis connects well with the sort of psychological dynamics of I can hold in my mind a certain select group of people and I can exert a certain kind of empathy and energy toward them that I just literally can't to this whole, the big society that we live in. And so in that way, a Baptist ecclesiology, I think is actually pretty helpful. I can get in trouble because there's some pretty big Baptist churches and they become too big just in their own right. I'm close to going like, I think maybe we should cap our churches at a certain size because at a certain size, what are you doing? Your multiple churches are, you know, it becomes very hard to answer that question. So anyway, but I do think that's another reason where I go. I like that about a Baptist physiology. Great. There's some very helpful principles to help go through these. I also had an interview with Tyler Greenway last week, and he brought up some things around this issue, not Baptist specific like you did, but. He talked about group thing. And so I think it's like a really good complimentary, helpful categories for talking through these types of things. I didn't even get into, but I mean, when you have a system that has some hierarchy in it, we're prone to, for example, endorse what people in authority positions say, right? And then when that authority position has a spiritual sort of veneer to it, it's even more, you know, and there's an evolutionary reason for that, the people who are successful, the people who are at the top, and what we hear in our echo chamber, right? That it's the salient thing and it's confirmation bias. I want my spiritual leader to not be a horribly immoral person. (laughs) So the data I get that confirms that, great. The data I get that disconfirms it, I'm ignoring. And so even within that system, you get all those sort of biases that we're prone to it. I often ask myself what Jesus, and I actually have asked Justin this, like, When Jesus is calling us to certain forms of life, is he actually calling us to work against our quote unquote natural inclinations or is he asking us to leverage them? And I don't always know. Like sometimes I go, man, it seems like we are set up for failure. (laughs) We are set up to endorse horrible people who are going to do awful things, you know, and we don't have a checks and balance. At the same time, I do think that this is where Freud is right and is actually a deeply Christian thinker in saying we need to be suspicious of our motivations all the time. We need some critical moment where I go, ooh, wait a minute. If that seems too easy, it's probably because it is, right? And so that's more psychodynamics, not psych science. But even that I think is helpful to go, we need someone to like pull the handle on the assembly line and say, wait a minute. And sometimes just being aware of our biases, sometimes having empirical research help us look at things can be that moment of critical insight. I think Jesus was asking us to consider I always get to end on the Jesus note. (laughs) That's right. And that is a good question. Sometimes it seems like we are set up to fail. And sometimes it works. I mean, like some of the stuff that you were talking about in the beginning, like it's true that we are inclined to believe in God. Children are inclined to believe in God. And that seems like a good thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It can be leveraged for some pretty awful things. It'd be interesting to think through all the different categories. Thank you so much for your time, Cutter. It's always great to talk to you. 